If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue our study of this great, great letter, the sermon. We've had now close to a hundred sermons on one sermon. (laughs) I hope you've been encouraged and strengthened. This section of text that I'm about to read is the climax of the sermon, so Listen to it with expectation that what the Lord is revealing to us through it is very special and important for each of us. Beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear today. Just by way of short recap, this, this text really is, is a unit, and it can't be taken apart from the whole, but we have taken now three weeks on this passage. And so, just by way of summary... We have not come to what may be touched. That's what we addressed in the first week. There is a severity of the touchable yet untouchable, blazing and forbidding cloud, fire, and smoke of that first mountain. And this is characteristic. What the author is doing with this comparison isn't talking about two hills or two mountains. He's characterizing poetically the first covenant versus the second or new covenant. And all of these descriptions, these seven descriptions of Mount Sinai or what may be touched are very significant because they show us how dreary, how harsh, how even, in some sense, oppressive, and to use even the terminology of Moses, how terrifying this really was. And the point of that first message was, thank you, Jesus, that that mountain, that covenant, that way of relating to God is not what we have come to. Jesus didn't come to bring us back to Sinai. He didn't come to just re-inaugurate the law of Moses. It's something bigger and better than that. What we have come to, and this is the significance that we talked about in both prior weeks. He's not saying what you will one day come to. He's not saying what I hope you all make it to. He's saying what you have come to. This is where we are through faith. It's not a literal mountain. And we are not standing there physically. But since we are in Christ through faith, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we are there with Him. That's the reality that we live in now. And so for the author of Hebrews, we draw near to God in no other way than through Christ and his sacrifice. Do you remember the first high priest, Aaron, 
and his son Eleazar. When you're reading the Old Testament, which I hope you do, there's a description of the breastplate that the high priests would wear. And on this breastplate were 12 stones, 12 precious stones. And on each of the stones was engraved one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And he would go in wearing this breastplate into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. This is a picture of how in Christ, our new high priest of a new and better covenant, now, through our faith in him, represents us to God, but we are there with him in the same sense that the names of the tribes were there with the priest in that sacred room. And Jesus is there in the heavenly holy of holies with our names, as we have just sung, engraved on his hands. That's what's happening. You're really there through faith. This isn't just a theme for the author of Hebrews either. The idea throughout the whole New Testament is that where Christ goes, if you're united to him through faith, that's where you go. You are united with him. This theme of being in Christ is, as you could say, it is the dominant theme of the New Testament, at least especially with the Apostle Paul. You can't go even one or two verses without him referencing, in some sense, in Christ. Or in Him. That's why I sign all my emails that way. In Christ. Because there is no more significant idea. There is no more sacred privilege. There is no more glorious reality than simply being in Christ. Even before the foundation of the world, for those who would believe, were, as Paul says, created in Christ Jesus. Loved before all time in Him. This is an amazing privilege. It is an amazing reality that through faith, by the Spirit, God has intertwined your very life with His. How can that be? How can I believe that? It seems very hard to conceptualize, hard to realize or feel. We're very feeling people. We want to feel things. We want to sense that they're true somehow. How can I really believe that I am there with Christ in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, at the base of the heavenly Mount Zion in Christ? How can I believe that? And as Jesus himself says in John 3, you must be born again. So much of the Christian life is seeing things that cannot be seen with your physical eyes. And even though the author of Hebrews doesn't speak in the terminology of new birth, he does talk about being enlightened, and even more importantly, being purified. And four times, more than any other book in the New Testament, he speaks of being sanctified. That's a different sense than Paul uses sanctification. He's speaking about it as us being made holy or set apart by the work of God through the work of Jesus in his mediatorial role in this new covenant. We're sanctified to him and in him. So how can I believe this, though? How can I see and believe that this is where I am, that this is where I've come through this new covenant? Part of my hope, and I really want you to believe this, this isn't just a a literary device or a question to ask at the beginning of a message to try and get you interested in it. This is a real concern for me, and it should be a real concern for you. How can we walk in an awareness that we are really in Christ? It's the ground of our assurance. It's the ground of our hope. It's the reason we ought to be motivated to live the Christian life, that we are united with Christ. It is the hope of glory, Christ in you, us in Christ, Christ in him, that that our union with him is, is why we can even get up in the morning. And part of this is the basis of my confidence in the preaching of the word of God. I'm under, I understand that I'm explaining things to all of us that can't be understand, understood on our own. But as I explain them clearly, 
The Spirit Himself enables you to see them. And this is why, just as a side note, I can't stand preaching, if it can be called that, that doesn't require any faith to believe. You can preach a lot about the wisdom of the Bible, the way of Jesus, how to live your life in a way that pleases God generally. But it requires no faith to see. You start talking about Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, us being united with Christ, now standing there with him in the heavenly holy of holies. That's foolishness to the world. So my hope, my prayer, my expectation in preaching about things that you cannot see with your eyes in your head and things that you can't see at all unless you were born again is that the Spirit would grant you enlightenment and even new birth as I explain them. For those who already believe in this room, my great hope and prayer is that this message would help remove the spiritual cataracts from your eyes and clear the weeds and the thorns away so that you can see it in the explanation of it. And for those of you who may not truly believe, my eager pleading with the Lord and with you is that you would see in my words at least a shadowy form of what is really there to see. And that you would begin to look more intently and that you wouldn't turn away but maintain your gaze undiverted and gaze long upon this that you really need to see and that you would believe. That's what I want to happen. And in fact, that's what I want to happen every Sunday, not just when we're talking about Mount Zion, but in every sermon, Christ himself, insofar as the gospel is preached and explained from some angle or from any text, that Christ is held out himself, not a version of him, not a mental imagining of him, but Christ. And you can believe in him through that explanation as he is held forth from the text. That's why I'm a preacher. I wouldn't do this. wouldn't be preaching the Bible, at least, if I didn't believe that could happen. And so the first things last week that we observed about Mount Zion. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the first characteristic of this new place that we have come to through faith in Jesus is that it is living. It is full of life. The, the hill there in Arabia that we just read about, bears, bearing children for slavery, is a mound of rock in a barren wilderness. And if even a beast touches the foot of that mountain, it was to die. Death characterized the first mountain because it is the holiness of God interfacing with futile, oppressed, cursed creation. But the heavenly Jerusalem is full of life. It's the city of the living God. And he says, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. We spent a while talking about this, but the main characteristic that he's underscoring, I think, is Joy, celebration, what characterizes Zion in contrast to Mount Sinai, the first covenant, is that, yes, we have now finally come to the fullness of God and there is nothing that separates us. We can rejoice. Rejoice the Lord is King. There's not something better than what you have in Jesus. Everything, if you're a believer, that you already have in Jesus is the very best thing. So our response, our life, even the motivation for holiness is joy. And then the third thing we saw is to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What this underscores for us is the security that we experience there. Heaven isn't going to last for a billion years and then there's something else. It isn't another phase of God's redemptive plan and then we'll see what he comes up with next. Our names are permanently engraved there. And because we are in Christ, I said last week, we are there as founding members of that new heavenly city. 
Not those who have a temporary stay, who stay in the hotel maybe as, as tourists. You have a place there that is as secure as Jesus' place there because you are united to him through faith. That's stunning. And there's not so much a therefore, a big conclusion of like, here's a five-step plan to live consistently with it. It's just to see it and to believe it and live your life consistently that that is what Christ has already accomplished for you through faith and that you get to invite others to join you. And now we come to the next description. So that was three. There are seven. So this next one here is the middle. This is why I titled the message this way, to see the great king. Last week we talked about the city. What characterizes the city? What goes on there? And now we behold the great king himself. And to God, the judge of all. And if there's one thing that I think seems out of place in this description of Zion, to me, it seems that it's the description of God. If you were writing this letter or this sermon, if this was your work, would you write that as the description of God as it relates to Zion? The contrast is meant to be the harshness and severity of what may be touched, of Sinai on the one hand, but on the other hand, the joy and life and security of Zion. So what's with this judgment? What's this with God being the judge? And there are tons of other things that he could have said. Tons of other things that he does say about God. He could have said here, to God, the Father of spirits, as he does in chapter 12, verse 9, just a few verses before. Or God, the builder of all things, as he does in chapter 3, verse 4. Or God, the Father of Jesus, which is referred to in 4, 4 and other places. Or to God, whose word is truth, referenced in chapter 6, verse 18. Or to God, most high, that's probably the one I would use in chapter 7, verse 1. Or the God who gives life to the dead, referred to in 11 verse 19. Or the God who sits on the throne, referred to in chapter 12 verse 2. So many other things he could have said, but why God the judge of all? If I were writing Hebrews, even if I had written everything as he had up to this point, I would have used one of those instead of God judge of all. It doesn't seem to fit with the flow of what's being said here. And frankly, it sounds more like Sinai than it does Zion. So what's going on here? And the author even has more to say about God being the judge. Just listen to the flavor of, this, of these two verses. Let mar- this is from verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And just in a few verses, chapter 12, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. That has the flavor, it has the sense, it has the feel of Sinai. What is going on here? Why choose this designation? The author isn't sloppy. (laughs) I hope that has been clear with our study through this. He's very intentional. He's eloquent beyond any of his peers in the New Testament. few things to consider to help us think about this rightly. Number one, in this description of what may be touched, so the first seven characteristics of Mount Sinai or what may be touched, do you notice anything that's missing? What may be touched? A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, and a sound. What's missing? God. God's missing. This underscores for us the inadequacy of the first covenant, the old covenant that Moses was the mediator of. God even himself says, they won't be able to keep it. They're not going to be able to keep it. 
I know that there are faithless people and they will break this covenant. And in fact, when Moses is speaking to the people of Israel after the fact, he says, you heard the sound of a voice. So the idea is that the the volume and intensity of God's voice and the spectrum of noise that was coming from him was so unbearable that they, they could barely make out words as the mountain itself was about to break in half. Moses and the elders drew near. We don't have time to read about this instance. They actually get to go up to the mountain. They actually eat a meal in the presence of God. But the threat of death is right there. And the people can't draw near. Only the high priest could go into the inner holy of holies once a year. So what sets Zion apart from Sinai in the most fundamental sense is that now we are actually able to draw near to God. In Christ, now you have, this very day, Christian, you have more meaningful access to the presence and person of God than even the high priest had on the Day of Atonement. Under the first covenant. Do you believe that? We have the fullness of God in Christ. No one has ever seen God, John says, but the only God who is at his right hand, he has made him known. You even have the right to sit at God's own right hand. And on the throne itself because of your faith union with Christ. Just as an aside, as a plug for the Lord's Supper, as the ceremonial meal that we take to celebrate this new covenant, that is what we're celebrating. That through the body and blood of Christ, we now have access directly to God. Number two, we must never forget that the new covenant is not an abrogation or an overthrowing or an undoing of the justice of God. On the contrary, it is the perfection of justice. I need you to listen very closely to this. This is very important. In the new covenant is where mercy and justice meet It's alluded to in Psalm 85, verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's in the Bible. Romans 3. I want you you to actually turn here with me. Romans 3. Such a key verse. Again, at the risk of running to Paul to explain everything to us. Go to Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. Such a key passage. But this is in order to show that the justice of God isn't something that we lose when we get to the forgiveness and grace of the new covenant. Look closely. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look, I know this might be difficult to conceptualize, and it's early-ish in the morning. It's the weekend. But if we're not going to think about these things carefully here in this room, then when and where are we going to think about them? And even further, when and where are we going to think about them together? Here's where it really hits the road. I've heard preachers say, and I've even said myself in the past, we don't want fair. We don't want justice. And on the one hand, 
if what is meant is that we don't want the justice of God outside of Christ poured out on us, then exactly, yes, that's fine to say. But in fact, if you are not in Christ, it would be be better if you had nothing to do with God at all. If you're outside of Christ, it would be better if he did not exist and if you did not exist. And just as an aside, that's the real appeal of atheism and agnosticism and nihilism. They're the only ways to try and escape what we know deep down in our hearts What's so plainly obvious in all of creation? It's because we're terrified of the fact that we are accountable to the one true God. So explain him away. Insist that he's not there. That's logical consistency if you reject Christ. But that's a different sermon. However, in the most accurate way of speaking regarding justice, we do and should want justice. We have been created to crave and to seek and to revere justice. It's a component of God's holiness and His righteousness. And we are, when we are all physically there, right? We are there through faith now in our union with Christ. But when we are all physically there or when there physically comes here, one of the main things that we will praise God for is that He is just. And that he is the perfect judge. So, number three. This is on the heels of that. In the new covenant, God is able to be more just. If we can speak that way. Than if it never existed. Than if the new covenant never existed. The author of Hebrews uses this phrase twice. It was fitting. We actually preached a whole sermon about that when we were covering chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting For God to do these things. What it means is that it is right. It is good. It is is the fitting thing for God to to do this. And I don't mean that God was obligated to create the world. However, since he created the world, the only right thing for him to do in his creation of it, governing it, and dealing with it, is in a way that brings him the most glory. That's very important. I know this, again, Difficult thoughts, but where else are we going to think about them? Since God created the world, the only right and God-honoring way to do it is for him to govern and redeem it in a way that glorifies him the very most. For him to do any other thing would be to betray his rights over his creation. God's plan is to be made known for all time as the most just and most righteous judge for all time by those who have been redeemed through faith in Christ. Number four, it is the ground of our assurance. God, the judge of all, has created, governed, and redeemed the world such that it is the most just thing imaginable for you and I, those who trust in Christ, to always have a place at home in heaven. That you and I are sinners goes without saying. That we need forgiveness goes without saying. But it will not be primarily on the basis of God's patience or His forbearance that we gain entrance into the kingdom, but on His justice. That's significant. It's not like he's going to keep being patient, keep being patient, keep being patient, keep being forgiving, keep being forgiven, because you won't need to be anymore. It will be on the basis of his justice. It will be right for you to enter that city. Do you, do you feel the difference that he's not going to be perpetually frustrated at you by how massively we blow it every day in our persistence as Christians? Through faith in Christ, there will be no possible other outcome than you having a place at the table. And obviously, you can't separate God's justice from His forgiveness or His mercy. But I think we have a habit of separating them. And we point to the forgiveness of Christ 
Or, or maybe we think of substitutionary atonement or the, the atonement itself as some kind of legal trick whereby God uh, satisfies the written code in some way and then allows himself to have mercy on us. And I think when we do that, we put his justice at odds with his mercy. But this, what we've been talking about, the jewel of all Christian theology, union with Christ, that's why it's so important. And why the enemy works so hard to make us think about other things as primary. Don't you see? Can you see this? In Christ, the only just thing for God to do is to not just forgive you of your sins, but to give you all things and to seat you with Christ in the heavenly places. It cannot be any other way. God would be unjust to treat you any other way if you are in Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And it was his plan. Don't put the Father and the Son at odds. (laughs) Just as we read in Romans 3, If you were looking closely, forgiveness isn't mentioned once. Mercy isn't mentioned once. And in fact, where forbearance or patience is alluded to, it's put at odds with God's justice. God will be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's not like Jesus is trying to wring out from the divine Godhead some sense of forgiveness so that we can barely make it in. He so radically changes the nature of being, the nature of us, that God obligates himself willingly to bless us forever. And it is the just thing to do. And I've lingered on this point so long because it's the point of the sermon to behold this great king who is just forever. You have come to God, the judge of all. And it should be just so central to our lives. God is the point. He's the middle of these seven descriptions of Mount Zion. But there's one more thing to ponder with this first statement. To God, the judge of all. He is the judge of all. It might be a slight allusion to the role of Moses when he acted as judge. If you remember the story, his father-in-law came and said, Hey, why are you seeing all these trivial matters? Appoint guys under you who will deal with the smaller issues and bring the bigger ones to you. Moses shows his inadequacy, being human, that he's not able to judge everybody. But God's the judge of all. Every little thing, every idle word, every evil thought... God is the judge of all. Christian or not, person of faith or not, spiritual or not, God is your judge. There is a final court where all your life will be measured against the perfect standard of God's holiness. And deep down, you know it's true. And we know that unless it's true, then all notions of right and wrong boil down to feeling and are meaningless. But that's another sermon again. One day you will face the judge, who is also creator and has all rights to do with whatever with you that is perfect and holy will determine. We have no leg to stand on. Do you see the immeasurable good news of the gospel that this great judge has willingly given you this way to obligate himself to render the verdict of righteous on that day? When you face him, the judge of all, he won't say, well, you're pardoned. He won't say, Well, through Christ I've forgiven you. Or I will decide to have mercy on you forever. 
the verdict, brothers and sisters, will be righteous. This one has the righteousness of Christ to his or her credit forever. And so it will not be unending patience or forgiveness going on and on. Because you are righteous, it will be right for you to always be there receiving all of his blessings. So trust him. Entrust yourselves to Christ this very day. Because you will face the judge of all. And you dare not face him outside of Christ. The next description, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's much to say here that's very interesting about this phrase, and we don't have time to get into it all. Uh, Maybe we can discuss some of it Sunday nights. That's part of what we do Sunday nights is we discuss the sermon and the text itself, getting into more that we just didn't have time for or that I didn't think about. But I do want to say a few things about this text to clarify. This isn't dualism, right? The idea is that not that we're just going to be disembodied spirits forever. Paul clearly has the expectation that we will have our glorified bodies in heaven or in Zion, if you want to use that phrase. It's not dualism, matter bad, spirit good. Rather, it shows that we are made perfect from the center of our being. And that we are all able to relate directly to to each other without confusion. Another thing to note, this is really interesting. Never is it said in all the Bible that people in heaven look down on us. We preached about... Hebrews 12, where people mostly go to, the cloud of witnesses, that's not talking about people in heaven watching us, but it clearly says here that you see them. Isn't that interesting? The beholding that goes on is that you have come to the full assembly of righteous persons made perfect. You see them through faith. We can, through faith, behold the full assembly of all of God's perfected ones there already, and we draw strength from them. And also, it's worth noting that this is the final vision. This this is eschatological. This is the end. Yet it is so sure and definitively set in the purposes of God that This gathering of the spirits of the righteous made perfect is so sure that it's more solid, more guaranteed than even the next moment or tomorrow. And so through faith, we can see that final gathering even now, even though it hasn't happened yet. One day there will be no tomorrow, but all the spirits of the righteous will be made perfect and it surely will come to pass. Note this as well. So we have God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous persons made perfect. And next we're going to come to the final one, or the second to last one, Jesus. So right in between Jesus and the Father, there we are. Sandwiched, if you will, between God the Father and God the Son. Our union with them is not in question. And this carries over from what was said previously about God being the judge. This vision is that God will have rendered the final judgment of righteous over all his people, those who trust in Christ. He's not an idle judge. (laughs) He will render more verdicts than any human judge has ever judged. And for those who trust in Christ, it's as if the verdict has already been handed down. We are justified now through faith in Christ. Personally, individually, and as a group, righteous. But this righteousness does not begin then in the courtroom of God. As I said, it's a verdict that he he pronounces over you. The Bible uses the term declared you righteous through faith in Christ even now. Therefore, our status as righteous begins the moment we are born again. And believe in the Lord Jesus. When we put our full and unequivocal trust in Him. The vision here, the the spirits of the righteous made perfect, has the emphasis that looks to perfection. So the idea is this. You can be declared righteous by God now, and yet lack perfection. Perfection. 
You can be functionally imperfect, yet declared righteous. Praise the Lord, right? Positionally righteous with Him, yet imperfect in our lives. And this is the tension of the Christian life. And many have tried to go one way or the other, talking about sinless perfection as being a possibility even in this life, or to say we don't, because we're declared righteous, we don't need to keep the law at all. We don't need to obey any of the commandments. So antinomianism and legalism both arise out of a misunderstanding of this tension of the Christian life. But the Christian life is nothing less than striving and making it the case that our lives further conform to the verdict that God has already rendered about us. The hope of Zion, brothers and sisters, is that perfection, the perfection that we all imperfectly strive for, even now, will be ours. We're not perfect. We don't even perfectly strive for perfection or holiness. Yet that which we desire, if you've really been born again and you desire to keep the commandments of God and to love Him through your life, that will be yours perfectly. And honestly, I can't wait. The very core of our being, the old man that just won't totally go away, will be gone. There will be no flesh in the negative sense to fight anymore. The possibility of sin itself will be removed, and yet we'll be more free than we ever were or ever have been. And every action that we do, every nuance of every one of our thoughts will be nothing but fully honoring and worshipful and praise to God forever. The response of those of you who truly know the Lord, when we arrive and experience that great transformation that takes place when we put off mortality and put on immortality, won't be, oh, wow, I guess it really is true. Turned out to be true. Good thing I was a Christian. It will be finally, finally, that which I have hoped for, longed for, and imperfectly striven for will be mine. And I will say, finally, here it is. And this is somewhat of a test for you to know if you're really in Christ or not. Not if you were perfect, but do you live your life like you're seeking the perfection that you've been promised? The longing for this perfection creates a life of holiness and a boldness that faces even death head on and says to die is gain. Christian, do you know that not even death can hurt you? In Christ, it is as if this cursed and dead world is giving you one final kindness to eliminate that which is mortal and cursed and broken, this groaning tent, as it were, and liberating you to full perfection in the presence of God. Like I said, I can't wait. Sure, I hope for longevity. I want more service to the Lord, more years of faithfulness to Him. But... More than that, I hope for faithfulness and greatest of all, full conformity to the likeness of Christ. And that can't happen until my corruptibility and my mortality is put off. And I am clothed with incorruptibility and immortality. Do you see it? Can you see these things I'm describing? Do you long for them? Take heart if you really do, because it will be yours. The universe would be undone and rip apart at the seams if God did not accomplish this for his people. Just as Jesus says, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Even if you see that in yourself there's very little of it, maybe, and the more holy you become, the more you realize you're just overcome by temptation and sin more than you ever saw before. Yet if you hunger and thirst for it, it will be yours one day. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The personal name of Jesus here in this verse, getting back to Hebrews, is emphatic. It's kept to the end of the sentence for dramatic effect. And none of the English translations render it this way. It's because we don't speak this way, really. But here's a more literal way of phrasing this statement. And the new covenant mediator to Jesus, or the mediator of a new covenant, namely Jesus, kept his name, his personal name to the very end. And this, this could be a sermon series in and of itself, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And in fact, it's one of the main points of Hebrews. That's what we've been talking about all this time, that Jesus himself mediates between us and God. We have this one. We've come to Jesus. I mean, that's the the great treasure. Seeing the great King, as we discussed in Sunday school this morning, God, the Father, is invisible, transcendent spirit. No one has ever seen God. So when we arrive, we will see the Lamb. We have come to Him. We have this one who is the final word from God. The final prophet, the final high priest, the one who is better and more mighty than any angel. We have come to him who is the very son of God. We have this one who was made like us to redeem us. We have this one to whom all the first covenant pointed. We have this one who came before us and prepared the way that we might be saved. And everyone who came before Him longed to see Him, and we have Him. But how is it that we have Him? And furthermore, how is it even possible that we have any of this? Any of this heavenly Jerusalem, how is it that we have really come to Zion? It is because Jesus Himself mediates this new covenant to us. It is a better covenant. And here I think there is some intentional contrast to Moses. If you look at Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6, the author says this, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. And we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What characterized Moses at the most crucial point of his mediatorial work with the first covenant was, I tremble with fear. When he stood in that place between the people and with God, it was full-on, unadulterated terror. But what characterized Jesus at the most crucial point of his mediation of the new covenant is it is finished. Moses trembles at the very point where only God himself in the person of Jesus can stand firm. And this new covenant, Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, it is really new. It's not the old covenant just repackaged. And it's not the old covenant just plus Jesus. As the author himself argues, this is the logic of the author of Hebrews. The law mentioned nothing about a priest serving from the tribe of Judah. So when God establishes a priest after the order of Melchizedek from the tribe of Judah, you've got to change the whole law. That's his argument. It's not mine. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. 
And I don't want to belabor that point because it would be another sermon, again, a whole other sermon series, when we talk about it whenever we get a chance, the difference between the first covenant and the second. This is something that should interest you because we worship a God, the one true God who is really there, who insists to be related to through covenants, through promises, and through a mediator. Not only is it new, but it is better because as the author himself has said, it's enacted on better promises. In a lot of ways, thinking about the Christian life could be summed up, and these are bad ways of thinking about the Christian life. When you encounter people who think about or talk about what it means to be a Christian, it could be summed up thematically as just a long journey back to Sinai. Be a good person. Make sure you do the do's and don't the don'ts. Just a long journey back to Sinai. Instead of relating to God through our new mediator, Jesus Christ. And through that assurance, living a life that is more holy and more free than could have ever been imagined under the first. That is the life of the Spirit. So be careful how you think about the law. But Jesus will always be our mediator. And that's the same, thing, same way of saying that, uh, means the same thing as saying that he will always be our high priest. His, his term in office, as it were, doesn't end. He's always the high priest. Because this new and better ter- covenant is eternal. There's no expiration date. There's no covenant afterwards. Therefore, it could be called the last covenant that God makes. Why is this relevant? How is this good news? Mainly because God himself, in the person of Jesus, will be the only one to mediate God to us. It won't be a man. It won't be an angel. It won't be another person who's more holy than you or lived a better life than you on the earth who stands between you and God. Jesus himself, who is God, will be the mediator of the covenant, the way that you relate to God forever. And in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the exact imprint of his nature. We won't be left alone in the dark, not being able to know God through an inadequate mediator. So, to wrap up comments on this statement, that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Do you know what the first statement Jesus says in the Gospel of John is? John's Gospel that came uh, quite a bit after the, the three synoptic Gospels. The first thing Jesus says in that Gospel is, what are you seeking? And then the next thing he says is, come and you will see. What are you really seeking? The author is saying, through this new covenant, the work of Christ in your life, you have come to Jesus. What are you seeking? What is your life really about? Is it to gain Christ or is it to gain the good things in life? Is it to have this one who mediates the new covenant to you or is it to have friends and be well thought of? What are you seeking? Is it to get ready for the day when his face I at last shall see? Or is it to go and see and do all sorts of cool things on this earth? What are you seeking? Is it to seek his kingdom? To seek himself? To see the king and his kingdom? That his will would be done on this earth as it is already in heaven? Or is it to build your own kingdom? Or to grumble about the loss of your kingdom? Or the dreams you had for your kingdoms? Is it to live like you really are there at Mount Zion? Or is it to live like, in case it's not really true, you still had a good life? What are you seeking? Is it to bring others along with you to Zion? Or is it to make sure that others don't mess up your life and your kids here? 
These are hard questions, and it's between you and the Lord. But they're to help you to see what begins to change in your life when you know that you have, in fact, come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That is the effect of faith, that these objectives, these goals, what your heart treasures begins to change. And even though we have him, he becomes our all-encompassing pursuit. That is the nature of the new birth. And this last statement here. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood. This is a fascinating statement in general, but the sprinkling of blood and the purification of everything that was a part of worship, that, that's throughout the Old Testament. Even the author himself in chapter 9, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's almost grotesque as you read through the Old Testament. You got a new priest, sprinkle him with blood. The tabernacle's finished, sprinkle it with blood. Is that the Day of Atonement? Sprinkle the ark with blood. You got a general sacrifice, sprinkle the altar with blood. And etc., etc., on and on it goes. And sometimes it's more forceful. It says, throw blood on it. And I don't know what it looks like to throw blood on something, but I'm guessing it doesn't look pretty. And if we were to video just one day of normal sacrifice there under the old written code, it would be rated R because of the gore there in those experiences. And PETA would have a conniption. It was crazy. So why then is it in this description of Zion and not Sinai that we have come to the sprinkled blood? Because in short, and you know this, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It can never satisfy the holy righteousness of God. And it is not just sinful things that need to be purified. Do you remember the animals, the the order that was given? If even a beast, an unrational, dumb animal, touches the base of this mountain, it's got to be killed immediately. And it's not just physical things. In Hebrews 9, 23, it says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I don't know what the heavenly temple is made out of. And what existed here on earth was a copy of that. Moses was shown a pattern and he built it after the pattern he was shown. But the heavenly temple, I don't know what it's made out of. It's not part of this cursed world, but yet it must be purified with a sacrifice because it's not God. It's not tainted by sin, but yet it is unholy because it's just not God. And so the blood of Jesus must purify, must sanctify, must consecrate even that heavenly temple. Just as an aside, to understand this, that heaven itself, not tainted by sin, has to be purified. Just just stand in awe of the incomprehensible holiness of God. That it's not just sin and breaking His law that makes something unable to be in His presence, but it's just anything that's not Him. So, in the same way that everything had to be just splashed and thrown with blood all over it in order to be acceptable for worship, everything, if it is not covered by the blood of Jesus, is unacceptable to God. When Paul says, and he reconciled all things to himself, we should take him literally. It's all of creation. Anything that is shakable is going to be taken away. Anything not covered by the blood of Christ is going to be gone, cast into utter darkness. 
And again, another plug for the Lord's Supper. This is what we're celebrating, that we have the blood. We have been given the blood of Christ that enables us to remain in the presence of God and not be destroyed. That makes us fully acceptable in His sight. And it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's this business about speaking? How can blood speak? It seems a little out of place, but tying it back to chapter 11 is important. And Abel actually gives testimony by his life. This is what he says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The blood of Abel cried out for justice, but I don't think that's what the author is saying here. It might be in the background, but I think more of what it's talking about is that his life and death speak to us. He was the first one to die, not for his sins, but for his righteousness, because he trusted God, because he was obedient to God, because he had faith, and so he died. Cain killed him. So he's the first to testify by his life that trust in God is worth dying for. So Jesus, again, is held out to us as the one whose life and example is preeminent. He is the greater able in that sense. His life testifies. Jesus' example, his life and death speaks. That's why I don't think it's talking about the cry of Abel's blood for justice, because that cry goes to God. Look at the very next verse, verse 25, Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So the blood of Jesus doesn't speak for us, as the song popularly says. The blood of Jesus speaks to us. And I know that sounds odd, but that's what the author is saying. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's speaking to us by his life. His blood, which summarizes his entire work, right? The Christ event, dying in our place for our sins. That speaks to us across the years, telling us how we ought to live. How we should live our lives from faith in him. Just as he says at the beginning of the chapter, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, as odd as it may sound to our modern sensibilities, the final exhortation, the final thing he says about Zion, isn't some glorious glimpse of angels celebrating, isn't some big shining light, it's blood speaking to you. So, we'll end with a few exhortations or hopes for you. Have you heard the life and blood of Jesus beckoning to you to live a life of faithfulness. This is pastoral for the author. He's describing Zion in this way so that the people can endure. When you see him, Jesus, live a life of holy and total devotion to his Father, may that stir in you a desire to do the same unwaveringly. When you hear his words of truth and life from the pages of your Bible, even in the words I'm speaking, may that draw you in to treasure them more than your very food. When you remember his compassion and his heart for sinners and suffering people, may that cause you to have the same compassion, mercy, and gentleness. When you gaze upon his grievous wounds received by the beatings, the scourging, and the cross itself, all endured on your behalf, may that create in you a love for him that leads to all holiness. When you bask in the glory of his resurrection, ascension, and eventual return, may you be greatly encouraged in your hearts that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When you see him interceding now for you in the presence of God, in the holy heavenly temple, may it give you strength to persevere. 
and look long enough and look closely enough, free of distractions enough for this sight of him to have the God-intended effect in your heart. And if you have even yet to believe in him, may the sight of him and his work that we've seen today move you to believe. He is worthy of all trust, for no one has loved, lived, or died as perfectly as he did. And a question I'll close with for everyone. Do you see his life and death? Do you hear his life, his death, his blood speaking to you? It is not I that speak. If you hear it, if you see it, I'm merely passing the message along. If you see it, if you hear it, you are hearing Jesus Christ himself. His blood speaks a better word to you this day. Through my words in these scriptures, you've heard his very voice. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Let's pray. Father, we have lingered long on these thoughts. I pray that you would transform our lives by them, that it wouldn't be just an interesting consideration about what might one day happen if we're lucky, but where we really are through faith in your Son, Jesus. May we live consistent with the righteous verdict you've already rendered over those who have faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.